Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. To celebrate the opening of 20th Century American Art, the Ebsworth Collection, at the National Gallery of Art on March 5, 2000, Barney A. Ebsworth discussed the collection's history and the works selected for the exhibition with Franklin Kelly, the gallery's curator of American and British paintings. On view through June 11, 2000, the exhibition featured 52 paintings, 12 sculptures, and 10 works on paper belonging to Mr. and Mrs. Ebsworth. Included were works by Edward Hopper, Charles Sheeler, Georgia O'Keeffe, Andy Warhol, Archley Gorky, and other American modernists. Ebsworth began collecting in the mid-1960s while living in Europe for military service and traveling for his cruise ship business. Although his early acquisitions were 17th century Dutch and Flemish and 18th century Japanese art, eventually the focus of the collection became American modernist works dating from the Armory Show of 1913 onward. An important collection required having only the best works of a certain period, and Ebsworth felt that modern American art was more accessible in terms of scholarship, more affordable than older masterpieces, and connected to the life of our times. He reveals the friendships, joys, and rewards that grew out of the collection. Good afternoon. My name is Franklin Kelly. I'm curator of American and British paintings here at the National Gallery, and it's a pleasure to welcome you to this uh, in an ongoing series of conversations with collectors. It's my pleasure today to introduce Barney A. Ebsworth, who together with his wife Pam have lent us the 74 paintings, sculptures, and works on paper that are going on view opening today in the uh, mezzanine and upper level of this building. Uh, it's a wonderful collection. I hope if you haven't seen it uh, already, you'll have a chance after this conversation to do so. We'll be showing you a small selection of, of objects from the collection uh, today uh, via slides. But uh, first, I wanted to, to answer one, one question that many people may have is, what's it like to be a collector and to lend all of your works and then have to go home to an empty house? And I hope, Barney, you recognize that the sumptuousness here of our uh, display is to make you feel right at home when you, <laughs> when you go back <laughs> and face the emptiness. The um, obvious place to start is where, why, and when did you start collecting art, and when did you start collecting 20th century American works of art. And what's that? <laughs> <laughs> well, it started uh, about 35 years ago. In uh, Well, 30 years ago, I guess, is a little better. The mid, uh, well, it was 35, about the mid-60s. Uh, my education in art really started in Europe. I, I was in the travel and cruise ship business, and I spent quite a bit of time in, in Europe. And after business was finished, there was the Louvre Museum and the Tate and the National Gallery and the Pity and, the, and all the wonderful things to see over there. So my education really was in Europe. Uh, never studied art anywhere, uh, not, not the practical art or art history. Um, it, uh, I, I had a normal childhood. I played baseball and basketball and hated <laughs> to go to the art museum. Uh, and it really started about the time I, I lived in France when I was in the United States Army and, uh, and had every weekend at the Louvre Museum and a passion grew and I started studying and started looking, which is very important to look. A lot of people study, they don't look. Uh, and as time went on and the business got a little better, I was able to afford to buy some things and I started by buying 17th century Dutch and Flemish art. I had a very small collection 
had a, a small collection of 18th century Japanese art because I spent some time in the Far East also. And uh, was getting very serious about collecting. And as the 70s uh, dawned, um, I, had, I had really come to the realization that the only thing that was important was to own the very best. And on a business trip to uh, Rotterdam, you see my good friend uh, uh, Nico Vandervorm, whose family owned the Holland America line, I talked to him about a, a little business deal. Uh, after dinner at his home with he and his wife, he said to me, he said, um, uh, you're obviously a workaholic, and now all these years later, it's sort of hard for me to think of myself as a workaholic, but I was then, and he said, uh, do you hob have a hobby? And Europeans at that time, I think, thought that all we did was work, and I said, matter of fact, I collect 17th century Dutch and Flemish art, and he said, well, would you like to see my uncle's collection? And I said, of course. And as I'm leaving, he said, here's a book on it. Uh, I'll pick you up at 9 o'clock and take you to see his collection. So we went to see his collection, and he had 17 Rembrandts and 27 France Halls and his own museum. <laughs> and I got on the airplane, and I, I was flying home, and I said, you don't speak Dutch. You can't do the original research. The great pictures are gone, and you have to go somewhere else. So I went to see my great friend, Charles Buckley, who was the director of the St. Louis Art Museum. And I said, Charles, I have a terrible problem. Uh, it seems to me that collections are quite often involved with art of your times. And I don't, and I'm collecting 17th century Dutch, and I don't think I can afford or find the great pictures. What do I do? And he said, well, what about, you like European art, what about Impressionist art? And I said, I can't afford Impressionist art. He said, well, what about the School of Paris? I said, I love it, but I can't afford it. And he said, well, what about American Impressionism? And I said, what is that? And he said, well, um, I'll, I'll, you'll have to learn about that, but you should look there. And then we talked about quality. And early on in the beginning of this collection, Charles and I talked about owning 12 pictures, just 12, and that you would buy the best pictures. And, and when you found something better than your 12th, you would put it in, and you'd only have 12 objects. It was such a wonderful way to start this collection on the, with the feeling that you were only going to buy the very best. But I told him, I said, Charles, there's one problem with that. It seems to me it's like having 12 children, and you're very proud and happy with all of them, and you have a 13th, and you have to take little Charlie behind the barn and shoot him. <laughs> so when we did, and this is skipping ahead, when we got to 12... I bought 13, 14, and 15 at the same time and never looked back. <laughs> About a week after we had this conversation, Charles called me and he said uh, at, at, at uh, Park Burnett in New York, there was an auction coming up, and there was this picture by William Glackens from 1914 called Portrait of Kay Laurel's Café Lafayette. And Charles had was a personal friend of, of Ira Glackens, the son of, of William Glackens, the artist, and had done the retrospective at the St. Louis Art Museum in 1966. So Charles was probably, it was then, and probably maybe today is still the reigning expert on Glackens, and so his advice was very good. So I said, being a rather decisive business person, I said, well, I have two tickets, let's go to New York tomorrow, and off we went. I walked in, I saw this, this uh, beautiful object, from the doorway and fell in love instantaneously. And in the process, he also said, you might look at Charles Birchfield's Black Houses, which we don't have an illustration of. 
But uh, I went up to the auction, bought this picture, and also bought the Glackens, or the uh, Birchfield, and I was off and running. So in a long, roundabout way, that's how it started. Uh, I think early on I realized that the, the first uh, uh, additional benefit of shifting the collection to this period was that it would also focus me on really the life of our times. I mean, the, the politics, the, uh, the history, the literature, uh, the music, everything. And being that this started roughly about the time of the Armory Show in 1913, and I was born in 1934, it was sort of my parents' generation, but it was also mine. And then it gave me a focus, because my interest had always been European history and European art. It gave me a focus on, on everything of our time. And it's been such a, a joy and, and, um, and so rewarding to really look at what we're all about in a, in a, in a more um, focused and... Um, programmed way, and it's uh, it just maybe the first of, and I think during this talk, I hope it'll come out, the many joys and the rewards uh, and the friendships that have grown out of this collection, uh, all kinds of things that I had no idea was going to happen. Now, when you got started, you mentioned the Armory Show of 1913, which of course was one of the crucial events for introducing modernist European art into uh, American public consciousness, and for the first, what, 20 or 25 years of your collecting, you really stayed in the period, say, between the Armory Show and the Second World War. Mm -hmm. um, the picture we just looked at uh, by Glackens was a portrait of Kay Laurel, but this is also a portrait of a very different kind. This is uh, a Marsden Hartley. Uh, what drew you from that initial foray of a relatively realistic picture in the Impressionist or post-late Impressionist uh, aesthetic to a much more radical kind of painting such as this? Well, I, th I think that comes, Frank, from, from again, the European experience. I mean, the, the, you know, Europe had all the realistic art. It had, uh, of course, the surrealistic art, and it had the abstract art. And I think, um, uh, you know, it's, it, the memory is never explicit or, or precise. I think I probably didn't get into abstract art until maybe about 1969 or 70. And I know, I know it was a Picasso, and I wish I could remember exactly what object, but uh, uh, my being was ready to accept all types of forms of American art, from realistic, impressionistic, uh, social realism, abstract art. And um, I think because I came with these European eyes, I, I had an appreciation, a little bit like Robert Hughes, the, the, the great reviewer who's an Australian. I think there's something about coming to America, even though I was an American. But my father was English, so in some ways I maybe felt a little, a little European. But with all this knowledge from Europe, I, I sort of came with these, these willing to accept eyes rather than the, oh, we're inferior or we didn't have the cultural uh, background. And uh, when I saw this object, I just, I said, this is a, a great monument. And of course, you know what it is. It's the, it is a memorial to, uh, Hartley's friend, uh, Carl von Freiburg, who was a young uh, German lieutenant killed at the beginning of World War I in 1914. And this is his, uh, one of his eight great tributes. He did eight of these. Uh, the other seven are, have a black background. 
I tried to convince Barbara Haskell, who did the retrospective in 1980, that they were all Good Friday and this was Easter Sunday. <laughs> but she was able to convince me, and I, and I definitely agree with her, that this was probably the first one done. It was all involved. He was involved with uh, Kadinsky, the spiritual and art, and also mysticism, Indian mysticisms, which you see. And you, you have, you have uh, the Indian farms here. You have the Iron Cross that was awarded to uh, Carl von Freiburg after he was killed. Uh, nine and eight are mystical numbers. And then you have uh, people ask about the numbers. You have eight, 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 are all mystical, but they add up to 24, which is uh, the lights are here. There they are, 24. He was 24 when he was killed. And you have the you have the, the, tri- the three-sided triangle, and then you have some of these Indian signs. And all of this is about sort of American and European um, spiritualism and modern thought, all coming together in this memorial to this man that he was uh, in love with. And we, we don't know what really happened in the relationship, and we never will, but it was obviously somebody that he had uh, uh, great love for. You obviously know a great deal about the objects that you... you have. Um, in a case like this, was it a picture as soon as you saw it that you already knew from your, your studying and from you knew of the series? And, or was it that you were struck by the painting and then subsequently came to learn more and more about it? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I, I knew when I saw it, it was a great painting. And uh, then I learned a little more about what was really involved in it. But it's, it's also the, and there's something very American about how the collection is formed, because even though um, it, was, it was expensive in, those, in, in the terms of, uh, of those days, in those days, I always knew it was a fair price, but part of collecting is, is convincing yourself you need to push yourself further. Mm-hmm. And um, I think in, even though I... I, I love the collection that ended up. Uh, you know, you can always say, "Gee, look at the ones you let, let go," but there weren't too many of those. Um, uh, but I, but there were a few, and and it's really just it's the it's the practical side I think of being an American that says, "Should I really be doing this?" And of course, as the passion builds up, and I must say, quite frankly, the two exhibitions we've done both. Uh, one of the motivations for doing it was there's a, a great tendency to stretch right before the exhibition and, and sort of push yourself past the prudence you might normally place on yourself. Thank God for <laughs> dropping prudence. Now, there are only a few artists where you own more than one or two examples. There, there are some where you own as many as three, four, or five, uh, including Georgia O'Keeffe and this great work of 1930, Black, White, and Blue, is certainly one of the signature works in that group. Um, you knew O'Keeffe. Very and well. How much importance did that have in your collecting her in depth compared to some of your other artists that you had? Well, probably not too much because I purchased this at the Ida uh, Talpert sale at uh, Park Burnett on uh, March 14th of 1973. Uh, she had been, as you know, O'Keeffe's last dealer. Um, and uh, after I purchased this, I did know Doris Bree, her present dealer, or her present at that time dealer. Uh, and uh, soon after I bought this, she called and said that Georgia wanted to put her two great abstract pictures together, and she owned the music Pink and Blue number one. And did I, would I be willing to buy it? And I said, uh, yes, yes, and definitely yes. And we bought them. And then that's when she invited me to come visit with her. 
And I think you know the silly story that I turned her down three times before I went, and then finally I said, you better go, and then we ended up being great friends. One of the, I think, for many people, most surprising aspects of your collection is that one can move, and the galleries that present this, this collection, I think, give this feeling very clearly. You can move from the familiar, almost sort of canonical textbook kind of masterpiece, like the O'Keefe or the Hartley, um, to things that may be rather curiously recognizable, but not quite, and you find yourself thinking, who is that? Um, and I know this is a painting that, that you sometimes bedevil people with who visit uh, your house. I don't do it. Who does it? <laughs> they do it to themselves, I suppose. Uh, I've never seen it from this angle. It's, uh, it's really quite extraordinary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's... Um, Pam and I keep it in our bedroom, and it's actually, we face it, and uh, it's, it's, of course, David Smith's uh, billiard player from 1936. Um, as Frank said, it's, uh, it's rather embarrassing sometimes because a, a very well-known and, and, and will-be unnamed curator looked at it one time and said he thought it was probably Picasso's best picture. Yeah. <laughs> Which is Picasso fair. might have agreed, actually. Yeah. No, I don't think Picasso would have agreed. But when you saw this picture, what I mean, most people, I think all of us think David Smith, we think sculpture. And we may know enough about his career to realize, oh, he did do a, a billiard player's sculpture. But it's a pretty big leap to go from um, knowing him as a sculptor to seeing the, the inherent quality of a picture like this. What did you think when you first saw it? Well, when I, well, I thought I wanted to own it. <laughs> right. And, of course, they, uh, that's, that's an interesting story. I was told that it had been re reserved for uh, the Whitney Museum with the second reserve for the Met, so I bought what I thought was the second best picture in the show. These were all in the estate that belonged to uh, Rebecca and Candida, his two daughters, and they were selling these pictures uh, for the reason people sell pictures for. And uh, so I took the what I thought was the second best uh, object, and a year later I was called by the dealer who said that the Whitney Museum had finally met their acquisition committee and decided they wanted to buy a contemporary John's, which I thought was ridiculous since they could obviously buy plenty of those and would be given plenty, but this was David Smith's best picture and why were they passing? And So I said to her, I had two questions. One was, what do I do with the object I already own? And she said, we'll take it back as a trade. And I said, what about the Metropolitan Museum having a second reserve? And she said, the, the, the two ladies were fed up with museums taking a year to say no, so that's how it came in our collection. <laughs> Now, that's the Metropolitan, not the National Gallery. No. I mean, we would never do that. Exactly. Uh, and, and in fact, anything you wish to know a decision about, you just ask, and we'll tell you right now. Exactly. <laughs> in the second gallery of the exhibition, one encounters some literally quite strange pictures, and this is certainly one of the ones that, that uh, fascinates many people. This is uh, with Guglielmi's mental geography. You have a small group of uh, American paintings uh, of the 30s and early 40s in a surrealist vein. Was that, again, something that you were looking for, or was it a case of just seeing an object that, that you had to have? Well, I wasn't looking for it. This, was, this came out of the Edith Halpert sale, so it was early in the collection, uh, along with the other one, uh, uh, Land of Cana from 1934. Um, it just seemed to me that, that this was such a, a wonderfully painted object um, and of a still basically 
underrated or unknown artist, and I just needed to have it. It, 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 it felt good to me. It's a very, it's obviously, it's a very strange, weird and wonderful, you might say, object, but, um, and, you, and Frank, you know the background of this. He, uh, this was painted right after the bombing at Granica, and, and, and in effect it was, uh, Louis lived in Hell's Kitchen right at the foot of, of uh, the Brooklyn Bridge, and this was his way of saying that fascism could flow to our waters. Uh, what the objects are doing there, I mean, that poor lady with a bomb in her back, I'm sure that, that didn't help when she was scrubbing floors. <laughs> and uh, the suit of armor being hung and a few other things in there, I mean, you can get your own interpretations of that. Also in the second gallery, one encounters for the first time a, a sculpture, and there are very relatively few sculptures in the exhibition here, and indeed part of your collecting. This is Ellie Nadelman's very beautiful dancing figure. Um, when and how did you come to sculpture, and why don't you have more, or what is the, you know, what's, what's shaped your collecting of that? Well, it's an inter- that's, a, that's a great question, and, and you know, I think over the years, I, I have asked myself, why do certain people collect what they collect? I mean, it's uh, why did Joseph Hirshhorn really go for sculpture? And why does, uh, I don't know if Ray's here tonight. Well, um, um, oh, help me. I'm in Ray Nasher. Nasher. Yeah, why is Ray Nasher a sculpture collector? And I think uh, one's a real estate developer, one was a, uran- a uranium mine owner. And I think perhaps in my mind, they liked, they loved art like I love art. And, Many of you love art, but they probably liked something they could get their arms around. They wanted to own something that was substantial and, and had, had uh, 360 degrees of value. Now, this is a man who built ships. I mean, well, you. <laughs> Talk about something substantial. <laughs> I don't, I, 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 my art is, I don't know, is more up here, I think. You know, and I'm more, people talk about uh, picture frames, and I'm not, I'm not it's, it's all right there. It's sort of, it's, 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 it's here. And, and when I buy something, or Pam and I buy something, you know, maybe recently, if it's very large, you know, I'll have to say, where does it go? In fact, Pam loved the uh, Joan Mitchell that's at the beginning of the show, and I said, I love it too, but where are we going to put it? And we realized it would only fit in our Honolulu home. Back to the sculpture, I think in some ways, and this is, I don't know, sort of strange, maybe it'll tell you something about me, but when you buy a piece of sculpture like this, um, you have to know, I feel, you have to know where is it going to go. And I can, uh, and we do. We, you, you've heard me say that, that my, one of my definitions of a collector is, is you're buying, you're buying things when you have no place to put it. And I can put a, I can put a painting or a drawing away. I can, I can, and in fact, the 18th century Japanese paintings have been put away for so long that Pam hasn't even <laughs> seen some of them. And... Uh, I can put it away, but for some reason I can't put this thing in a closet. So I don't own as many pieces of sculpture because I have to have a place to put it, and it's generally a place where you can walk around it. And that's the long answer of why I don't have more sculpture. I, I certainly appreciate it just as much as painting. But I think paint and canvas is, would have to be where I'm really at. I'm sure that's a bad grammatical sense. But it makes perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's get back to let's get back to where it's at. Um, <laughs> uh, this one you can't take home. No, not anymore. I'm happy to say this no. this week the Ebsworth announced that this great 
work by Charles Sheeler called Classic Landscape would be returning to the National Gallery when the exhibition has concluded its run at the Seattle Art Museum where it, it goes after uh, its parents here. Uh, and here's a painting that, that you literally and many other people, including myself who knew of it, never thought could possibly be bought. Mm -hmm. And yet you managed it. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, this beautiful painting was, was uh, bought the year after it was painted. It was painted in 31 by uh, Mr. and Mrs. Zetzel Ford. And of course, it's of the River Rouge plant that was the modern Model 8 plant that Henry Ford had built in, in, in Detroit. Um, it, it really became, and I don't know what the reason was, but uh, you and I have talked about this. this. This painting has been in more exhibitions than any American painting ever because the, the Fords, well, first of all, it's a great painting, but the Fords, I think, sort of said to someone, just keep it, we'll loan it to anywhere. So it's been around the world, it's been in South America, it's been in Europe, it's been all over this United States before we got it. Uh, early in collecting, I was able to buy the watercolor done in 1928 that was the study. I didn't like it being called a study at, at the time, but I guess it was really a study for this oil that he painted in 31 because I knew this picture would never be available. When Mrs. Ford uh, passed on in the early 80s, uh, lo and behold, it, we found, everyone found, that it had been willed to the Dearborn House, which was the Ford's history house of the area around Detroit. Uh, not to the Detroit Art Institute, which, of course, probably always thought they were going to get it. All of us thought they were going to get it. And uh, as the 80s came on and the price of art went out through the roof, uh, someone must have said, you better get a an appraisal on that piece of art because it might be worth more than you have it insured for it. And they got the appraisal. I, I was not party to that, of course, uh, and must have said, oh, my God, that can solve our budget problems, and off to Sotheby's it went for auction. And I went to Sotheby's to buy it, and uh, uh, three dealers got together and bid the price up, and, of course, I got cold feet and didn't, didn't buy it. It went over my price. And then a year later, getting ready for our exhibition that we did at the St. Louis Art Museum, Honolulu, and the MFA in Boston, I said, I went to the dealer, Stuart Feld, and I said, um, what do you want for it? And he told me, and I said, done. And I bought it from him. So this, this picture and uh, Tree of My Life by, by, uh, by uh, Stella was also owned by the Iowa State Teachers Association. It was also in a nonprofit organization. And, the, and I believe the same thing happened there. They just got an appraisal of it, and somebody said, let's get rid of it. We don't need it as badly as we need the funds for our organization, and I was able to buy that at, at auction. You don't have that slide, dude. I didn't jump your story, did I? No, we got to stop before we go to Stella to Hopper. Um, I think many people probably know this picture, if they know any one painting from the collection. And this is one of the ones you've owned for, for most of the time that you've been collecting American modernist painting. People ask me when I bought this, and I generally scratch my head and say, well, I think it was um, December the 14th, 1973, about 10.35 in the morning. So I do remember when I purchased Now, don't ask me what I had for dinner last night, because that's a different story. This is Edward Hopper's Chop Suey. Um, one of the problems with an artist like Hopper is that he was uh, well-known and, and, and valued, really, from the 
late 1920s on, and he was a prize winner at many uh, museums around the country, many of which, has, as their prize, uh, cash prize to the artist, would acquire paintings. Um, and of course, he and his wife arranged for his entire estate, the bulk of his uh, works that hadn't been sold, to go to the Whitney. So the chances to own an Edward Hopper oil, certainly one of this period, 1929, and this, this quality importance, are, are virtually nil. And is that something that, um, do you find that, what do you do when someone comes to you and say, where do I get a hopper? And you just say, forget it? No, <laughs> no, it happens quite often. Uh, there are still a few out there. And I've been trying to help a, a, a museum or two and a, a, a friend or two to find one. Or not, not find one, we know where they are. Right. It's uh, <laughs> just to uh, have it come up, but uh, push what they're, what a bunch of them are trying to do is to get me to say something, and of course what I say is, uh, I only do what Frank wants me to do. <laughs> Thank you, Barney. <laughs> I mean, sort of like when they call you and ask if you know anybody who'd like to apply for a certain job, they want you to do it. Is that yeah, what you're yeah, telling exactly. me? Yeah, exactly. Exactly, yeah. yes. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, this is what you were talking about just a few moments ago, the Joseph Stella Tree of My Life, which, which is in the third gallery and very much physically and emotionally dominates it. It's an extraordinarily, uh, as you can see, intricate object. It's quite large, but full of all this wonderful, uh, amazing detail. It's an autobiographical picture. Stella talks about its importance for reminding him of his childhood experience of the countryside, the Italian countryside, the flowers and the birds. Um, this is truly a, a singular object, and again, one that, that many of us knew of it and thought of it as already being in the public. Uh, in fact, I believe it was at the Des Moines Arts Center, wasn't it, for Iowa State Teachers Association? I mean, they owned it, but I thought, anyway. No. Um, is it an object that when you, you found that it was available, again, it was just a non-hesitation, but is it one that, I find this picture almost impossible to understand, it's so rich and so complex, unlike, say, the Hartley, where you can begin to get, get at it. Have you found, after uh, having it now for, what, 10, 12, 15 years, has it gotten any clearer to you? <laughs> I think so. Can you see the, the mm -hmm. tree? <laughs> mm -hmm. it's, I don't have any in my yard growing like that. No, it's, uh, it's, it, it's, uh, it, it, it doesn't uh, yield all of its, all of, its uh, under, uh, of what you need to understand of it, but, but that's true of every single object we've seen so far. Um, uh, it's, um, sometimes Pam and I maybe on a Friday evening when, when we're by ourselves, because we'll, it's in our living room and it's, we don't get around it that often. Maybe we'll have a, a nice glass of uh, Montrachet and sit and look at it. And uh, it's, it's, it's uh, been a great companion for us, along with our old English sheepdog, of course. <laughs> um, as you know, it's, it's, uh, and they may find it of interest, it's, it's a companion piece to an equally large, same size, uh, uh, painting of the same year called Brooklyn Bridge, which is at the, in the Society Anonym Collection at the Yale University. Um, I find, uh, I mean, I think these, those two objects are, fit my definition of hero or, or heroine. They're, they're not, they're large, but if you look today, the art students coming out of school today that want to be important are painting larger than that all the time. Along with probably um, 
the, the Morgan Russell that was done around the same time. These two paintings, I think, are the largest paintings any American artist did between World War I and World War II, except for the murals, the WPA things, but private. And I think, and, and, the, and the Brooklyn Bridge is, is his new life in New York, and it's cubistic, and it's, those of you that know the object, it's dark, it's ominous, but it's modern. And this is gay and lyrical and colorful, and it's, his, it's Italian life and Italian futurism, done by a futurist style, done by an American, and, and, and the two pictures, side by side, I mean, are just, it just boggles your mind that he could do either one of them, but to do both of them, um, it's, uh, I, I, I just, I think it's quite, quite remarkable. Quite I remarkable. I agree, absolutely. And I'm almost certain this will be your next president. <laughs> Now, we, a little while ago, we talked about having objects that aren't by the household names. And, and here's, as you climb the stairs up to the third level and uh, go into the fourth gallery of the, of the exhibition, you encounter this, this monumental, quite, it's, it's, it's very large, very tall, uh, stone marble sculpture by John Storrs. Uh, once again, an artist who probably isn't that well-known, and yet an object like this, I think, argues that... Um, this is one of the great sculptures of the period before the Second World War in this country. And it's only equaled by one other by him, which is in the Whitney. How much did you know about stores when you had the opportunity to acquire this? Well, quite a bit. Because uh, I, mean, I think if I owned both of the stores, I definitely owned the painting before this. I think I owned all of the other stores, the, uh, the, the, uh, the biomorph, the mm -hmm. abstract part, the sculpture, and this. And uh, this is part of why it's so wonderful to be collecting what I did when I did, because this, these kind of things don't happen anymore. I walked into Robert Sholkoff's gallery, who was one of these wonderful dealers who, unfortunately, Bob's no longer with us. And I walked into his gallery one day, and right in there, right in front of me, was this wonderful object. And, of course, I knew the two pieces from MoMA and from the Whitney, and it just knocked me out. And I said, Bob, uh, is that for sale? And he said, yes. And I said, how long has it been here? And he said, 30 minutes. And I said, I'll take it. I didn't even ask him the price. I said, I'll take it, you know, knowing that, that what an opportunity. You know, and uh, it's, uh, I've just always been so grateful that I was there at the time and, and, and could buy it. It's, I'll have to tell you another thing which a collector should never do. I shouldn't tell you the story, and I also shouldn't tell you I did it. I asked Frank, just suppose, what would be the ten things you would like from our collection if you only got ten? Because I really wanted to see, you know, if, you're, if, you, if you want to do something for somebody, you at least should give them a little chance to say what they, they like. And, and I must say, I didn't think this would be one of the ten. So Frank, in so your now we get eleven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but but Frank picked the slides for this lecture. I didn't know what he picked until I got here this afternoon. So maybe that gives you a little indication of the list. You know, I never thought of that. I think that I, is the list. Isn't it? It might be. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, some on the list have actually um, come, come to be. This Arthur Dove uh, painting called Moon is another of the gifts that the Ebsworth have uh, announced this week that'll be staying at the gallery at the conclusion of the exhibition. I think. It's remarkable when you're, particularly when you get to the upstairs part of the gallery and where much of the work that's on view is abstract, there seems to be two sort of broad poles of abstraction that, that have interested you. One is the more organic and the more sort of uh, n nature and, and symbolically expressive, and the other side, as we'll see in a moment, is much more geometric, much more hard-edged. Mm -hmm. Uh, was that a conscious, again, looking for the sort of broad poles of abstraction in the 30s and 40s? No, it wasn't. And in fact, it's very interesting because you know so much more than I'll ever know. But I, I would think this object to me comes, and it's one of, the, one of the themes I keep throwing out to curators and, and scholars to take up. I think this object comes out of uh, the Amer American natural, naturalism, you might say, and, but it's abstract, and, it's, and it's, it's not European, it's American. And someday I'd like to see somebody, and, and you'd be the perfect person to do it, to, to write you know, all the way from, from uh, Copley to, uh, well, I don't want to go too far here. I get on more shaky grounds when I pass 19th century. But uh, the, the, the connection, the Americanism, the sense of place um, of... of Americans looking at our natural, our, our natural uh, world. And I feel this is very much there, tinged with a little American form of, of surrealism. I mean, definitely this tree is uh, doing something and, and uh, radiating, a, 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 I don't want to, it's radiating whatever you see it radiating. Right. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's just a wonderful object, but it's so American. And I mean, I think if you look at the Stieglitz artists, just to take them, but even even Sheeler and, and Hopper, who weren't Stieglitz artists, but if you take O'Keefe and Marin and Dove, and you just feel that connection with Aikens and Homer and Church um, and, and Pollock mm -hmm. and de Kooning and Johns and Rauschenberg. <laughs> All coming up, too. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's, we're, we're Americans. But what about something like this, which looks, at first glance, this is Jean Zeron painting. It looks, at first glance, to be somehow more intellectualized, more sort of formally about art and about um, what he's been looking at in the world of art rather than, say, Dove looking at the world of nature. Mm -hmm. Is this... I agree with you. Is it also American <laughs> in some fashion? Is yeah, it, uh, yes, it is, because, you know, you can see that Zeron, you know, comes out of Modern. You know, anyone that would deny that isn't looking or, or isn't being honest. Um, but I've lived with this object for a long time, and um, it, it speaks to me in ways, uh, in different ways than Modern speaks to me. It's, uh, and, and, and that's a, that probably should stop there and just not go any further, but I mean, it's uh, the way the, yel the yellow and the, and the red and the whites all appear on the canvas and the shadings, you can't, I can't see it from here, but I don't know if the audience can see it in the slide, but the gradations of, of the darks to of green to lighter greens. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful object. I, I, I know his works fairly well. I must say I don't, know, I don't like anything that he did as well as this, but that again is what this was all about. 
I don't think it's about um, American naturalism. I think it's about an American uh, trying to latch on to what was modern and, and, he, and his inspirations were European. Um, I think this whole American abstract artist group has been, has been put down for being derivative. But then what art isn't? And, and uh, I'm, I'm, I think we've been very fortunate, Pam and I, to own some really great objects from this period. And in many ways, the people who collect in this field, I think, revere the, the, the few that we have almost more than the total collection. Mm -hmm. So uh, among the weirdos, this is, this is king. Well, <laughs> <laughs> certainly one of the, the, those of us who have been, been happy to know your collection for a long time and saw the show in 87, indeed one of the, the clear messages that came out of that exhibition was that there were vital and, and incredibly interesting abstract painters working in America in the 1930s and 40s who didn't turn out, didn't go on, or didn't in some fashion uh, fit into the, to the historical sequence that says now you get the next stage, which is abstract expressionism. Mm -hmm. And uh, your collection, 15 years ago, more or less stopped mm -hmm. at that chronological and aesthetic point. Mm -hmm. um, now, more recently, though, you have gone past what had been a cutoff point, mm -hmm. um, and indeed gone into the works of many of those people who seem to have eclipsed the uh, abstract artists like Zeron, Volotovsky, and others. What, um, again, what, was it a conscious decision that I'm, I'm going to charge ahead into the 1950s and 60s? Or was it a case of, of got to have that, or something that, that turned this tide? Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> Well, after, after we did the exhibition in 1987, uh, it untied my self-imposed curatorial hands that I was in American modernism. And uh, I knew long before then that, that the greats that I really was interested in were Pollock, de Kooning, Rauschenberg, Johns. Those four for sure. Um, and, and, and also, also Rothko and Klein and the other the great New York school people and uh, and the pop I think probably I felt more about Liechtenstein and, but Warhol started growing but the, the big the big four I consider them the big four they I knew about them soon after I started collecting American art but my curatorial responsibility was American modernism. And there were plenty of European, there were plenty of Picassos, there were plenty of other things that, that, boy, I got tempted to get. And then I said, no, concentrate where you are. But after that show, I, it, I mean, this was all self-imposed. I took myself out of that straitjacket. And, and my friends in the American modernist field thought, oh, boy, Barney's abandoned us. No, what had really happened in that period of time that we had been collecting, a lot of great things had disappeared. But what I had found out that in American modernism, that period of time from roughly World War I to World War II, there had been less great American paintings and, and American artists because there was just this feeling that this wasn't something to be done. And so the, what I, where I had started uh, in 72 of leaving 17th century Dutch, all of a sudden I said, gee, there, there really isn't that much around anymore. Of, of great A-plus pictures by A-plus artists. And so I sort of eagerly went into this new direction. 
But I think what my friends in American modernists didn't realize then is that I hadn't abandoned it. In some ways, it had abandoned me, but that I was still interested in, in being in that area because, of course, I bought the Edward Hopper French six-day bicycle racer, the Walt Kuhn can, uh, portrait, self-portrait as, as Kansas. Uh, I bought a couple of uh, two or three Hartleys since then. Um, so there have been other purchases, but it... it the direction I was going in was to sort of broaden this out into the whole the period that I thought was really important, which was the Armory Show in American Modernism, all the way up to about 1970 with the Hockney. Um, but of course, you know, with this show coming on, all of a sudden the Gorky and the Pollock, and I mean, to be able to find a 1950s uh, Pollock uh, composition with red strokes here, I mean, it's. It's not as big as, as Lavender Mist, but it's got everything going on in it. Um, and it fit, it fit the house. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. It's pretty extraordinary that, that given what's happened with the interest in, in de Kooning in particular and major exhibitions over the last 10 years, um, it's pretty amazing that you could even have an opportunity to own a picture from his most famous series, the women pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, was it a surprise to you that this chance came? It was a surprise, but it, 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 there's always irony. In all, every one of these objects has some kind of an interesting story. There's a very interesting and wonderful man who I have sort of been following without knowing him real well, who was buying a lot of, a lot of American modernist pictures that I, that I thought about but then let go. And, and then I'd find out years later he bought it. And there was a great uh, Lucian Freud uh, uh, 1966, uh, uh, well, I'd have to say it's not a new woman, it's a naked woman on a, on a bedspread that I, I really wanted to buy because it was such a wonderful object. But the discipline of the collection said, don't do it. Well, all these pictures ended up being owned by Steve Martin. And so when I found out this had come up because he had, he had owned it and then he had bought a Picasso and uh, in order to pay for it, uh, he had given this Sotheby. So I thought, I looked at this and I said, this is a great picture and uh, it's time that I, I bought something that belonged to Steve Martin. <laughs> and, uh, and we've talked about it and, and, and joked about it. It's a uh, woman is landscape. It's the last of... The Kooning's major uh, women paintings, uh, 54, 55, and you can see the woman, the first woman of the 50s, the great paintings of, of women was the, the uh, Whitney's painting, and it's ferocious. I mean, it's eating everything in, in sight. And here, the woman is, she's disappearing into the landscape, and then in 55, he did, um, and she's saying goodbye. This is bye bye, but thank you, Steve. <laughs> Here's your most recent purchase, I believe, isn't it? Yes, it is. You mentioned Rauschenberg. Mm-hmm. Early on, you decided that once you were moving into this area, um, but you had to look a long time, and you sort of surprised yourself with, the, with this one, didn't you? I did, because I didn't... Uh, well, there is a very famous uh, 1959 uh, Rauschenberg that, that uh, Rusty Powell and Frank and I were all trying to work on sort of being the, maybe the capstone, at least, of this exhibition, which didn't happen. And so I was rather surprised last November <clears throat> at, um, oh, my God, who was it? Was it Christie's? Christie's. Christie's. It was it Christie's. Okay, Christie's. Um, to see this little object, and everybody was ooing and eyeing, and um, 
So Pam and I decided that it's, it's something we wanted to, to have. I particularly, I mean, there's so many things. It's the beginning of, of, of Robert Reichenberg and doing his combines, and he's got a wonderful tube of, a spent tube of red paint that he's just nailed onto this thing. <laughs> and, and, and we think this over here is a little, uh, it's got to look harder to in there. We think it's probably a Valentine, but I think what particularly tickles me about it is the Bob, that he signed it Bob up in the corner. <laughs> um, <I laughs> it's and it's basically all found objects, and it's all irregular, and it's sloppy, and it's messy, and it's wonderful, and it's and it's when when he really was there, and paint and street and American, wonderful. Gosh, I'm glad to have that at home when I get it. <laughs> So with the Rauschenberg and, and your earlier purchases of, of uh, de Kooning and Pollock and this great Johns, you, you hit the four. Why this Johns in particular? You often talk about the object in terms of its intrinsic qualities and beauties, but also the historical moment. And was this a particular moment you were looking for with, with Johns? I was. And uh, I guess if, if I could have secured a target or a flag of that same period, as long as that period, because his, his encaustics and his feelings and you know everything was just so right then. Um, but you know, gray is his color. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think what's so wonderful about this object for both Pam and I is that it's, it's gray rectangles, but it's not gray at all. Uh, the three boxes, are red, yellow, and blue painted over there. Underneath you can see just little indications that they were red, yellow, and blue. And in fact, there's flecks of yellow all through the entire canvas. But it's, um, it just operates on so many levels, a visual level, intellectual level, uh, um, Johnsian level. I mean, you know, there's something about the man that uh, is hiding things all the time. And, um, and I just feel gray. And this particular 1957, you know, his 55, 59 period before, uh, and it's a theme I can get on with what's wrong with American artists today is, is, you know, striking it rich and becoming rich and famous. Now, Jasper Johns has done, a, in my opinion, and I wish he was here to hear me say it because it's nice, is, has, has fit what I call the Monet mold, which is you become rich and famous, but you're still trying to, you know that in, in you, you still have to prove that you're the great artist. I, I call it the Monet. It's, it's my way of talking about what artists, uh, how they, they maintain what they are. Picasso had it too, but Monet, as you know, uh, George Clemenceau, who, who was the Prime Minister of France, was one of his best friends. So, I mean, you know, here he was, fame and fortune, but he was still trying to prove he was a great artist. I think our artists, and now I'm off on a political <laughs> statement, I think our artists today are, are spoiled. You know, they're 25, 26, 28, and all of a sudden they aren't sitting as da Vinci did at the foot of the king's table. They are at the they are the king, and they're sitting in the middle, and before they ever had a chance to mature, they're being corrupted by fame and fortune. And According I, to the Times, Mary Boone is back in business yeah, in a big yeah, way, too. I saw that. 
And, uh, and I think it's a shame because uh, I think a lot of them will never recover from that fame and fortune, but some of them, you know, go through the pits and then come back and finally say, I am a great artist and I'm going to do it, but it's such a hard way to go, but it's the life we live in today. You um, mentioned after your, your sort of picking the four that you had to have Pollock's Kooning, Johns Rauschenberg, pop, you said, and, and some of your more recent purchases have been in, in pop, but not much. I mean, I don't think this is ever something you figured you'd have a, the same kind of depth you have in, say, the 30s um, mm-hmm. work. Is this painting by Tipo, Bakery Counter, is this one that, that, again, particularly fit the bill of what you were looking for time and, and, and uh, moment in the artist's career? Well, I think we need uh, the next one-hour session to this, because I'd like to talk to you about is this a pop picture? All right. Uh, because, of course, you know, Wayne does not think it's a pop picture, and, and, and in, in some ways, he didn't get the fame and fortune of, of Warhol and, and, uh, and Lichtenstein because he was in California. Um, I just love it because it's, it's, it's just like the cakes and the donuts up there, it's gooey, and it's, it's got texture. I mean, I think if, if, if Barney Ebsworth was trying to pin Barney Ebsworth down, and next to having a Warhol, which is what you see is what you see, if I had to pin Barney Ebsworth down, I would say, if the composition and the, and the um, uh, if, if it works from a, from a compositional viewpoint, that the thing that really turns me on is gooey paint and lots of it and texture and going all over the place. I mean, you know, uh, Pam and I keep this in our dining room, you know, and, and uh, you know, you want to, in the middle of, in the middle of the fish, you want to go up and stick your thumb in that cake and just pull out a big gooey hunk. It's, it's this, this picture is dripping with icing. Um, and it's just a great object. Uh, a funny story about this, uh, I saw it, um, the, the, the gentleman who owned it opened a gallery in San Francisco above John Bergruen's when I had my cruise line out there, and, and I saw there were always galleries opening and closing above John, and, and so I went up, pressed the elevator to go up, and the lights were all out. I could pe- hear people in the back, and I saw this object on the wall, and it was in a darkened room, not that dark, and I fell in love with it. Well, for the next 20-odd years, I'd get a call from a dealer once a year saying, will you buy that for X dollars? And I said, yes. And of course, six months later, nothing had happened. So when it finally uh, came up for auction, one of the three Ds of auction that gets objects to come up, death, debt, and divorce, um, there is one fellow who was involved in all three, now that I think about it. Not not this owner. Uh, This was unfortunately divorced. And uh, the dealer walked in at the auction, and I looked at him, and I said, tonight, it's really for sale. <laughs> and fortunately, was able to buy it. There was, the, the rumors were out that there were five buyers, because it had been in San Francisco the whole time. There were five buyers there, and my great friend Jack Lane, who was the director at that time of the uh, San Francisco Modern Art Museum, was there with his wife, as well as John and, and others. But it turned out when all the shooting and fire and smoke and everything was over with, the underbidder was, was a Washingtonian, Robert Lehrman. Mm-hmm. And um, we've become good friends since then. And he walked up to me after the auction, a mutual friend introduced us, and he looked at me and he said, and those of you that are collectors that have bought at auction will, will know this, this feeling. 
he looked at me and he said, I think you had lots of bids left because my tradition is always to bid last. Uh, there's no point in wasting your time. You might as well just wait till they're hammering it down and put it in a bid. And he said, I think you had lots of bids left. You were, going to, you were committed to buying that, weren't you? And I said, yes. And he said, oh, thank goodness, because I wanted, I, didn't, I wanted to know that you weren't going to quit after one, that one more would have won it. <laughs> and, and I put my arms around him, and I said, and thank you for quitting. And we became very good friends. <laughs> now, this is the last slide I've brought, which Certainly in terms of paint texture, this is very different. The, what you were just talking about, you love the thick swirls of paint in the Tebow. This is very calm and cool by uh, contrast, but also very emotionally rather strange and, and uh, perhaps troubling. What led you to this David Hockney? Well, like some of the others we've talked about, uh, I for many years had admired his, his four great monumental portraits that he had done, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Clark, uh, uh, the collectors, and um, uh, uh, Chris Isherwood and his friend, uh, uh, and, and this one with Henry Getzeller, the, I call him the grand poobah of <laughs> New York art, with his friend Christopher Scott. And it, and it really is a little bit of everything that I think David was really great at. He's, first of all, he's, he, he really captures um, the, the two figures. Uh, I love his, his, his paintings where the, he did the, tape, the glass tables. I love his still lifes, his, his, his flowers. And then, of course, being an American modernist, I looked out that New York window and said, my God, that's a mid-50s Charles Sheeler, is larger than he ever did. I said, it's a bonus in the picture. But there's something, there's something so American about this picture, despite, you know, of course, David was a, 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 a British subject and had only been in America for about six, seven years at the time he did this. But it's, it's, uh, it is, as you know, the last, uh, chronologically, the last picture in the collection. And, uh, and in many ways, I think it's sort of appropriate, particularly since right, at, right over there just... Um, what, three days ago, Wayne Tebow gave the most incredible, I, I salute all of you, any of you that were there for the lecture at 3 o'clock um, last uh, Wednesday or Thursday? Wednesday, Thursday. I guess. What was it, Thursday? Wednesday. 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 Uh, Wayne Tebow is not only the great artist that did the bakery counter, but he gave the most incredible, incredible one-hour talk on, on what painting was about. But the other artist, and I'm sort of long... Uh, uh, explanation here is this David Hockney that did this picture. I mean, David is, it looks at, I mean, I've run into him at, in, in Munich looking at the Kranichs, and uh, I mean, he looks at art, and he thinks about art, and now has come up with this wonderful theory that that uh, Ang and, and others before him were using the camera, Lucida, to, to assist these wonderful drawings, and I've always said that Ang was uh, there's no one since um, that has has drawn like he has. I mean, he's this incredible draftsman. But uh, finishing on my American note, I guess, is David, because he came out of British training, can, can draw. And um, I don't know, I'm almost sounding like I'm, I'm making a plea for American art students to go back to drawing classes, because unfortunately our artists today can't draw. Um, but I just always loved this piece. And then the opportunity to uh, purchase this came along, and... Pam and I are um, 
uh, just very um, fortunate that, that we have been able to uh, acquire these objects to go through our life with us and then they will become part of a public collection. And uh, we're very grateful for that. Well, thank you. Oh, sure. Mr. Ebsworth has agreed if, if anybody's interested in asking a question or two, we still uh, won't go too long, but for a few more minutes. So if anybody has a question, you'll have to raise your hand where I can see you <laughs> or just shout out. Maybe we have the lights up a little bit. Yeah, thank you. Yes. The, the question is, in the exhibition, there's a uh, work, I'm about to say painting, but you can't call it quite that, by Dove, um, which is called C2. C2. Mm -hmm. C Roman Ocean. Yeah. C as in the ocean. And the medium, uh, as it's listed, is, is metal and sand and chiffon. And the question is, how did he do that? It's not the first time that's been asked. Arthur Dove and Red Tour were living on a, a boat in, uh, in Long Island Sound uh, through the good times, that being the summer, and the bad times being winter. And uh, it was, this actually was created just before, what's well, a great Washington question, because it was, it was created in 1925, and I believe 26 or 27 is when, when uh, Phillips began giving him a, a monthly uh, stipend to keep him going. Uh, he really didn't, I mean, he was really quite destitute, and, and they were living on this boat because that was the only way they could have shelter. And uh, he found, these are all, as, as far as we know, these are found things. It's a piece of stainless steel. It's, he built this rather crude frame, metal frame around it, and it's a piece of blue chiffon, and there was sand in, inside, and he made this he made this incredible, well, you've seen the object, this incredible um, uh, feeling of, of the sea. And, uh, and then put a glass over it and held it all together. I don't know if I should say this, but when I bought it, the, the, the glass was pitted. So I had Clem Robertson, who was the conservator of the St. Louis Art Museum. I had to, he said, are you sure you want to do this? I said, we have to replace that glass. But of course, when he took the glass out, he could have destroyed the work because the work was so simple. Fortunately, that didn't happen. And um, actually, if you, the uh, Phillips collection has C Roman numeral one, which has a little, little sun or moon, probably moon, moon. up in the corner. Um, it's just an extraordinary object that that uh, was so early in in uh, in, in art. I mean, there was uh, Switzers and you know, was doing some collages in Europe, but, but I'm. Well, I don't know whether Dub knew about that or not. Um, and it's just a wonderful piece. It was the first Dove that came in the collection. It came from the Edith Halpert auction also. Any other questions? Yes. Anybody who felt that way had to go to New York to 
I hope you're very young. <laughs> well, thank you all for uh, coming this afternoon. And thank you, Barney. Thank you, Frank. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast. 